Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. 12.44 p.m. Incoming. Perry Dossie wanted to puke. Downtown Detroit spread out before them. Urban sprawl stretched out to the right, while Lake St. Clair filled the left side view. Plumes of smoke rose from the city, some from skyscrapers, some from the ground. Wind carrying the black smoke from left to right, due west across the heart of the city toward Ann Arbor. He wondered if the smoke would reach that far, spread soot on the University of Michigan Stadium where he'd once been a star. The three skyscrapers looked like smokestacks, as if the whole city of Detroit was a giant ship steaming eastward. He was in the last of the three Ospreys. Dew had told him why. Any missile fire would probably hit the lead helicopter. That strategy, of course, was only as good as the guesswork of the guy firing the stingers. The closer Perry got to Detroit, the more he sensed the infected. This was so different from before. Mather had been one guy, really hard to locate. It had been easier to track down three hosts each for the South Bloomingville and Marinesco gates. The Detroit signal felt huge, undoubtedly more hosts there than he'd ever encountered. It was also stronger for another reason. Chelsea Jewell. He could experience her, taste her blank soul. He would find her. He would help her because she had tried to fuck with his head. And nobody fucks with a Dossie. An alarm blared through the cabin. Incoming, the pilot shouted. Missiles inbound. Perry gripped hard on the bottom of the seat. The Osprey's nose tipped down, allowing him a view of the ground far below and the other two Ospreys out in front. The smoke trail started low, from a house way off to the right. It curved, course-correcting, to match the Osprey's velocity. Hold on, kid, Dew said. It's out of our hands now. The missile seemed to pick up speed as it closed in, covering the final bit of distance in the blink of an eye. Up ahead, the lead Osprey ejected a spray of flashes with white contrails countermeasures of some kind. They didn't work. The Osprey rocked to the left, a fireball spewing out of its right side. Amazingly, it didn't disintegrate. Perry felt a flash of hope that the pilot had lived, that he might be able to set her down. Then the Osprey's right engine fell away. The half-plane, half-helicopter simultaneously rolled to the left and tumbled forward as it plummeted. It disappeared beneath Perry's line of sight. He didn't get to see it crash, but those guys were gone. Twenty members of Whiskey Company, plus the Osprey crew. Dead. Just like that. Let's hope they're out of stingers, Dew said. Our chances of survival just dropped from 66% to 50-50. The alarm beeped again. I guess they're not out, Dew said. He looked semi-relaxed, not in the least concerned that he had a 50% chance of dying in the next ten seconds. The alarm changed from a beep to a steady blare. That's not good, Dew said. 
Perry heard whooshing sounds, something shooting off his Osprey. Two seconds later, he heard an explosion. The Osprey tilted to the left a little, then came back to normal and kept descending. Dew looked a little bored. How can you be so calm? Perry said. The next one could be us. Dew shrugged. When your number's up, your number's up. Sides, you're here. You're like a cockroach. You survive anything. I'm sticking close to you. You're like a big death umbrella. Perry nodded and tried to control his breathing. Dew was going to stick close to him? Screw that. More like the other way around. This was Dew's world, and Perry wasn't going to leave his side. Dew nudged him. Take a look out front. We're coming in for a landing. Right up your alley. Perry looked, then shook his head. Dew started laughing. 12.46 p.m. Otto on the run. Clarence turned, aimed, and fired, squeezing off four rounds as Margaret sprinted toward the long, two-story, tan-brick building. She glanced at the street signs, Franklin and St. Aubin. Cinderblock walls filled the building's windows. The place looked like a miniature fortress. She ran for the door. Clarence passed her. He was so much faster. He reached it, stood at an angle, shot the deadbolt lock, then kicked the door open. They were only a block from the loading dock in which they'd first hidden. Ogden's men had followed them in. Clarence hadn't found any hiding places that he thought were defensible, so they'd run again, bullets hitting all around them. If this building didn't give them some protection, it was over. She ran inside. He shut the door just as more bullets reached out to them, tearing into the door's heavy wood, ricocheting off bricks on the outside wall. One step slower, and they both would have been cut down. Margaret was so scared she wanted to pee, but she kept moving. One thought in her head kept her feet pumping. This wasn't as scary as a one-cheeked Betty Jewel. Clarence turned and ran farther into the abandoned building. Rusted metal machinery dotted the cracked floors amidst stagnant puddles of standing water. Margaret saw trash and discarded crack vials everywhere, as well as a rusted shopping cart and half a blue toilet seat. It was a big building, a lot of halls and rooms, If they could find the right spot, it might take their pursuers a long time to track them down. Clarence saw some stairs and dashed towards them. Margaret followed him up, both of them looking for a place to hide. 12.48 p.m. The landing. The Osprey slowed quickly as they came in for a landing. Perry heard a plinking sound, bullets hitting the craft's armored sides. His body screwed tight with raw anxiety as he waited for a stinger to hit. But none did. Nails spoke loud and calm, his words picked up by the little microphone curling around from the side of his helmet. We're taking fire, possibly from a 10 or 15-story building southeast of the landing area, Nails said. I need air cover right now. Nails turned to face his men. Apparently, he didn't trust the microphone to pick up everything because he started screaming at the top of his lungs. All right, we're coming in under fire. The Osprey will land with its nose facing the fire to give you a little cover as you go down the ramp. Hit the ground, go left. There's some bleachers there. Get under them, find cover, return fire. Once our air support kills the snipers, we will move out. We have 25 minutes to destroy the target. 
We're maybe a mile away, but we're not sure where we're going. I'm guessing we'll be under fire as we run. We must press forward no matter what. Understand? Yes, sir. The men barked in unison. Do leaned in to talk in Perry's ear. All these guys are expendable. You are not. They will draw fire and give you enough cover to move out. Hopefully, they'll pin down the shooters. Hopefully? Do smiled and slapped Perry on the shoulder. Like I said, kid, it's all just odds. I put us at about 80% to make it. Which means there's a 20% chance we won't make it. Do winked and pointed a finger at Perry's face. He flicked his thumb down twice. Bang, bang. The face under his helmet showed electricity, excitement, as if someone had just sliced 20 years off his soul. He likes this shit, Perry thought. He likes it, and this is the man I'm counting on to keep me alive. Perry felt something. The sensation of the hosts flickered, faded just a little. Another sensation flared up, very weak, but unmistakable. The grayness. Do, Perry said. I think they're trying to jam me again. Before Dew could respond, the Osprey landed hard, throwing men against their seat restraints. Get up and move! Nail screamed. The rear ramp dropped open, and men rushed out. Perry started down the ramp, looking out at what had to be the most surreal thing he'd seen yet. The open, green expanse of a high school football field. You should feel right at home, Dossie! Dew shouted. Perry hit the green artificial turf and cut left along with the other men. They'd landed almost on the 50-yard line. He ran across a black circle decorated with the yellow letters MLK, and then he was on the green again. Somewhere in the back of his head, the ghosts of his past cheered for scary Perry Dossie one more time. He was even wearing a helmet. In front of him, a man's head snapped to the left. The man stumbled and started to fall. Perry reached out and grabbed his jacket, then flipped the limp body up onto his shoulder. He never even broke stride. From far off to his left, a deep stuttering sound, then an explosion. He only semi-heard these things. All he could think of was reaching the empty aluminum stands that stretched out in front of him. Suddenly, he was on the red track, heading for the corner of the stands, then curving around them. Their bulk shielded him from more bullets. Men surrounded Perry helping him lower the wounded man. As soon as Perry set him down, it was clear the man wasn't wounded. He was dead. A bullet had hit him on the right cheekbone and gone out the other side, the exit wound much larger than where the bullet had entered. Nice try, Perry, Deuce said. An A-10 went after the snipers on that building. We're probably okay for now, but we have to move. Deuce checked his watch. According to you, We've got 23 minutes, so which way do we go? Perry looked away from the dead man. Forty-odd soldiers stared at him. Some were breathing hard. All were waiting. Perry, Dew said. Now or never. Perry closed his eyes and just felt. Without looking, he raised his right hand and pointed. When he opened his eyes, he saw that he was pointing toward the smoking Renaissance Center. Nails drew in a big breath. Let's move! Time to get some payback, men! Fall out by squads and let's make time! The men turned and started to move out by squads. Perry took one more look at the dead man, then stood 
and began jogging after the men of Whiskey Company. 1 o'clock p.m. The Pythagorean fucking theorem. Corporal Kenny Johnson was no Corporal Cope. That was for sure. Talk to me, Ogden said. This isn't the Pythagorean fucking theorem here. Just give me a fucking head count. Kenny was on one knee, handset held to his ear, trying to contact the remaining soldiers. He scribbled away in a notepad as he talked. Johnson? He looked up, his face showing anguish, panic, and fear all at the same time. My guess, sir, 20 men. That's the best I can do. 20. That was not good. Sir, Johnson said, I'm also getting reports from the inner perimeter. Large force of maybe 50 men moving southwest down Lafayette toward our position. Regular army. Snipers are slowing them down, but we can't stop them. Ogden hung his head. Whiskey Company had found a way. So close to success. 15 more minutes. That's all they needed. As long as Murray didn't know what building they were in, he'd have to bomb half the city. Or drop the nuke and Gutierrez didn't have the grapes for that. But the attackers probably had Dossie. He would sniff out the gate, and that would be that. Ogden had to protect Chelsea. Tell all units to fall back to Bravo positions, Ogden said. That includes Mazagati and my personal squad. Ogden closed his eyes and reached out. He had to prepare Chelsea. 1.02 p.m. Bravo positions. Margaret and Otto sat motionless beneath a loose chunk of plaster and lathe. They were in what had once been a small closet, or a smaller bathroom, she wasn't sure. Some of the holes in the floor might have been for plumbing. She'd hoped their black suits would let them fade into the shadows. Clarence was down to one bullet. If the three soldiers found them here, it was all over. When they'd entered this room, they'd been careful to avoid the crack vials that littered the floor. Even with the gunfire echoing through the city, any noise might give them away. Ogden's men had been searching for ten minutes, rummaging through the ground floor while Margaret silently prayed they would leave. They hadn't. Now they were going through the second floor. Every few seconds, the men shot something, probably firing into shadows just to make sure. Soon, they would fire into this shadow. They're coming, Clarence whispered. Our only chance is for me to shoot the first guy and take his weapon. No, Margaret hissed. They're moving as a team. We have to try something. When I move, you stay here. Maybe if they get me, they'll think we split up. After they leave, you sneak out as best you can. Margaret couldn't speak. If they got him, meaning if they killed him, he hoped it would give her a chance to live. Clarence Otto was willing to die for her. She heard a crunching pop of glass, a foot stepping on a crack vial. She grabbed Clarence's hand and squeezed it tight. Then she remembered he needed the hand to shoot, and she let go. Moments later, feet softly crunched the broken glass as a second man entered the room. Even through the suit, she felt Clarence's body stiffen. Hey, Sergeant Major, hold up, one of the men said. A pause, then... That douchebag Kenny says the general ordered us back to Bravo position. Now? Yeah, of course now. What about Montoya? Forget her, man. We gotta get ready for the counterattack. If the general beats us there... Fine, 
Let's go, men. Haul balls. Creaking boards. One last faint crunch of glass. Footsteps descending the stairs. Margaret and Clarence waited, but heard nothing. Her body sagged, as if her soul had slid free and taken her skeleton with it. Her body relaxed, but Clarence's did not. I want you to stay here, he said. I'm going to follow them and see if I can spot this Bravo location. Clarence, no. You've only got one bullet. We need to get out of here. I'm not discussing this with you. I have to see what it is. Fine, Margaret said. Then I'm going with you. Margaret, goddammit, knock it off. There's some serious shit going down. It's not just Ogden's men. It's total chaos out there. You could get hit by friendly fire. Stay here, and as soon as I make contact with someone, I'll have Murray send people right to you. I am not leaving your side, she said. I don't want to get shot at anymore. Believe me. But if you go, I'm following you. So it's your call. If you want me out of harm's way, that is exactly where you need to be. He glared at her. He looked even angrier than when she'd broken his tooth. She glared right back. He shook his head and sighed. You stay behind me and be ready to run, got it? She assumed he would stay with her. Well, she'd open her mouth, and no matter what, she wasn't letting him go alone. I got it, she said. After you. He walked out of the room, quickly but carefully, letting his pistol lead the way. Margaret stood and followed. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. One oh six PM Target locked. Dew popped up over the trunk of a Ford, 
fired off a burst, then ducked back down. Bullets peppered the car, hitting metal, glass, and rubber. Whiskey Company had cut through most resistance up until now, but Ogden's men seemed to have concentrated in this area. The fighting grew nastier by the second, racking up casualties, about 15 so far. With the uncontested and constant air support, that left plenty of fighting strength to push forward. When Ogden's men did fire, Apache chain guns quickly ripped into their positions. Come on, Perry, Deuce said. They're digging in here. We gotta be close. Which goddamn direction do we go? Perry lay curled up half under the ford, slush wet pavement coating him in black winter road grime. I'm trying, he said. They're jamming me. It's getting bad. I think it's Chelsea, do. I think that little bitch is doing it. Another burst of plings and cracks as bullets ripped into the ford. Dew heard the buzzing roar of a chain gun, then the firecracker on steroids blast of 30-millimeter rounds tearing through brick and wood and glass. Then nothing. A pause in the action. Dew pulled Perry back up to his sitting position and leaned him against the ruined ford. Look at me, Perry, Dew said. We've got nine minutes. Come on, kid. Focus. Perry nodded and closed his eyes. It's blurry, Dew. It's two signals. And... One of them is moving. Key on the signal that is not moving, Dew said. They can't move the gate. Perry nodded. He breathed in deeply through his nose and let it out slowly from his mouth. Eyes still closed, he raised a hand and pointed over the hood of the battered Ford. He was pointing down Atwater Street, toward downtown. A snowy field stretched along the left side of the road and past that, the Detroit River. On the right side of the street, he saw a dilapidated, three-story brick building surrounded by empty lots. Faded blue paint up on top had a barely legible sign painted on it. Globe Trading Company. That way? Dew said. Where? Behind that building? No. In it, I think. You think or you know? I think, Perry said. I told you, the signal's fading really fast. Dew scratched at his face and then looked around. Even in the middle of the firefight, he could see civilians scrambling for cover, cowering in doorways, frightened eyes peeking out from windows. Apache heat rounds would destroy the building, but didn't guarantee destruction of the gate. Was there a basement? Had Ogden built protective berms or other support structures to harden the target? Dew could have one of the F-15s drop a 2,000-pound bomb, but again, he wouldn't know for sure if that took out the gate. Not to mention inevitable civilian casualties. Those bombs could kill people as far as 100 yards from impact. Dew's conservative guess was that a bomb would kill at least 50 people, men, women, and children. He checked his watch. 1.08 p.m. Five minutes to go. Dew pulled out his sat phone. Murray, come in! Murray's scratchy voice came back immediately. Murray here, over. We think we found the gate, Dew said. Corner of Orleans and Atwater. Understood, Murray said. Can we bomb it? Negative. Do not take out the building. There are too many civilians around. I'll take Whiskey Company in and make sure this is the real deal. We'll capture it. Blow it manually if it gets hot. There was a pause. Do this is President Gutierrez. Uh, hello, sir. It's admirable that you want to protect civilian life. But I was informed Dossie is 100% sure that the gate opens at 115. 
That's correct. I'm ordering the bomb run for 115, Gutierrez said. If you want to stop it, enter the building and capture the gate in the next six minutes. Fuck. Do shoved the sat phone into his flak jacket, then thumbed the transmit button on his helmet mic. Nails! Nails, come in, over! Do heard the response in his helmet's earphones. Nails here! What are your orders? Building at the corner of Orleans and Atwater, Do said. That's the target. Get in there right now. Kill everything that moves. We have four minutes to secure that building, or they're going to drop a bomb that will level about five square blocks. Yes, sir! Dew looked at Perry. Well, kid, you ready? No, Perry said. Not even close. Dew slapped him on the shoulder. Tell you what, we go out there, we get this bullshit done, then tomorrow you and I go fishing. How about that? Perry stared at him for a second, then nodded. Okay. Maybe Dew's daughter wouldn't go fishing, but Perry was probably the closest thing he'd ever have to a son. 1.11 p.m. Hostages. Following the three gunmen turned out to be much easier than Margaret had thought possible, for a very disturbing reason. They had run back to the eight-laned Jefferson Avenue, turned west and started collecting hostages, herding them along at gunpoint, like cattle. Sixteen so far. Women, children, and a few men. Some people had resisted and had been gunned down instantly. A few had shot back, men in their 20s and 30s, firing handguns and even one shotgun. Gangbangers, maybe. They didn't stand a chance. The body-armor-clad soldiers worked as a team, moved as a unit, and gunned down any resistance. They even collected the resistors' weapons, leaving nothing behind. Margaret and Clarence followed at a distance, staying out of sight, feeling completely helpless. Clarence kept cursing in a low growl. He wanted to kill those men. So did Margaret, but Clarence still had only one bullet. Attacking the gunman would be suicide, plain and simple. There was nothing he could do but wait for an opportunity. So he followed, and Margaret stayed by his side. 1.12 p.m. And fire. Perry didn't know jack shit about military tactics, but as a football player, he knew great team play when he saw it. Right before Dew called in the attack on the old factory building, Perry could spot maybe four whiskey company soldiers. They popped up, shot, dropped back down, moved from one spot of cover to the next. They grabbed wounded comrades and civilians alike, dragging them to safety. Fifteen seconds after Dew's call to nails, Perry saw at least two dozen soldiers. They seemed to materialize out of nowhere, charging forward, shooting at the globe building's boarded-up windows. The building grew hazy as bullets pounded bricks into little puffy tan clouds. Perry's helmet radio buzzed with the excited talk of soldiers on the attack. Sniper, third floor! Got him. Keep that fire on the second floor windows. They're chucking grenades. Dew stood, groaned a bit as he did, then scooted around the front of the fort and ran toward the building. Perry drew his forty-five and followed. This was insanity. But if Dew was going, Perry was going with him. Dew's sprint wasn't much of a sprint at all. Mentally, maybe the guy had shed 20 years, but physically, not so much. 
Soldiers raced across the empty lot on either side, passing Perry and Dew as if they were standing still. Each step felt like it took five minutes. Five minutes during which a bullet might connect at any second. Yet no fire came his way. Perry saw only one enemy gunman. Didn't actually see him, really. Just four or five muzzle flashes from behind a cracked piece of plywood covering a third-floor window. About two seconds after that shot, the plywood disintegrated thanks to a massive concentration of fire that kicked out a rain of splinters and paint chips. The gunman didn't fire again. Dew followed a dozen soldiers towards a rusted roll-up garage door that was closed only a quarter of the way. A battered plywood wall blocked the rest of the opening. Perry heard a whoosh from behind and instinctively ducked. A rocket shot past at least 20 feet to his right. It hit the plywood wall and erupted in a cloud of fire and wooden shrapnel. Nails his voice in his helmet speakers. Take that building! Perry moved forward, still right behind Dew. Whiskey Company soldiers were 30 yards ahead of them, rushing towards the now gaping door. For what must have been the hundredth time in the past hour, Perry tried to comprehend the bravery of a soldier, someone who chose to rush headlong into enemy fire. The first soldiers reached the open door. One tossed in a grenade. Like an optical illusion, someone from inside the building tossed out a grenade at the same time. The two devices actually passed by each other, going opposite ways. The charging Whiskey Company men scattered and dove for cover. Two didn't make it far enough. The grenade exploded. No fireball like in the movies, just a hellacious bang, an instant cloud of smoke and a fist-hard hit of air. The two men were standing one second, falling the next. One hit the ground face first and didn't move. The other turned as he fell, landing on his right side, hands reaching behind his back, and grabbing madly as if his clothes were on fire. Automatic gunfire erupted from the boarded-up second-floor windows, one gunman on either side of the roll-up garage door. Another Whiskey Company soldier went down, screaming, grabbing at a thigh instantly soaked with blood. Dew kept running forward. Perry stayed on his heels. Dew raised his M4 and fired. Perry pointed his forty-five at one of the windows and emptied the magazine. Plywood splintered where he shot. Behind him, to the right, he heard a woof. Then a second later, a heavy crunch as something ripped through the plywood window right before a concussive bang blasted it outward in a fiery cloud of pulverized brick and wooden splinters. Perry reloaded, debris raining down on him and Dew as they followed soldiers beneath the roll-up garage door. Once they were inside the long, open space of the Globe Building, there was no subtle strategy, no effort to capture a hatchling alive, only the brute force of 25 pissed-off soldiers, one old CIA agent with a bad hip, and one former All-American linebacker with two bum knees. The fight didn't last long. Only a few of Ogden's men remained alive, and most of them were already wounded. The hatchlings attacked, of course, but they had no cover and were quickly mowed down by concentrated fire. Perry killed three of the little fuckers himself. Each shot felt better than the last a tingling trip of adrenaline ripping through his body. He'd killed the infected because they needed to die. Killing hatchlings was just plain fun. All eyes had been focused on the soldiers, their guns, the hatchlings. When the last hatchling fell, shivering in its sickening death throes, Perry and the others took in the massive brown and green construct 
arching to an apex some 20 feet high. Strands of the brown material ran from the arches up to the roof's metal framework 40 feet above, supporting some of the construct's weight. And past the gate, a white and brown Winnebago. From inside, he sensed the infected. She's in there, Perry said, and pointed. Dew shouldered his M4 and opened up on the Winnebago. Within seconds, four other men unloaded on it as well. Shiny dots appeared as bullets tore through the thin walls. One tire popped, then another. Dew stopped firing and put in a fresh magazine. Secure the building, Nails called. No prisoners. Make sure they are dead and do not touch the bodies. And find Ogden. I want to piss on his fucking corpse. The men spread out. Perry walked right under the gate toward the Winnebago. Behind him, he heard Dew. Murray, we have the building. Abort bomb run, Dew said. Repeat, abort bomb run. Keep the F-15s on station just in case. We'll rig the gate to blow manually. Perry kept walking. He held his 45 tight, but was careful to keep his finger off the trigger. The Winnebago had so many holes it looked darkly comical. He stepped toward the small side door. Blood leaked from it. Dew kept shouting, Nails, I want C4 at the base of every arch, and don't be stingy with it on those other parts. Perry stared at the blood dripping from the bottom of the RV's door, lightly pattering onto the dirty, cracked concrete below. More commotion behind him, nails screaming, men yelling back and forth, but little of it registered in Perry's thoughts. He still sensed that other presence, but barely. The jamming had grown during the firefight, so bad now that it was almost all gray again. This was it. It had to be. He opened the bullet-ridden door and looked inside. A body, but not Chelsea. A man in a postal worker's uniform, dead and still oozing blood onto crinkled plastic that partially covered the narrow floor. Perry leaned over the body and quickly looked around. Chelsea wasn't there. No, 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 no. Chelsea had been the moving signal. She was gone. Perry, Dew yelled. Get your ass out here! Perry shut the door and turned back to the others. The gate was glowing, like white frosted glass illuminated by countless, tiny, slow-moving, high-powered bulbs. It lit up the warehouse interior, filling it with a beautiful glow. Perry walked up to the gate. He could already feel the heat. It was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. A biological jewel, glowing, with light drawn from a million stars. Texture like a rough tree trunk. A smell like leftover barbecue. Emotions of love, admiration, even awe. They rolled through him, too strong to deny. Perry saw it, felt it, and sensed it all at the same time. The vibration. The opening. The spongy green door from his dreams of six weeks ago an eternity ago. A connection from infinite distance, the threads of the universe binding, entwining, coalescing into something that blended all existence. Purity. Nails, how much longer? Dew said. It's 1.14. This thing opens up in 60 seconds. Almost there, sir. Perry stroked the gate one last time. It wouldn't be long now. 
He left his hand there, feeling the growing heat. Okay, it's ready, Nail screamed. Move out! Go, 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 go! Men sprinted out of the warehouse. Perry marveled at their energy, their intensity. Someone hit him on the shoulder. Stop staring at their asses, kid, Dew said. Let's go! Dew hobble sprinted toward the door. Perry followed, barely needing to jog to keep up. They ran out and across the field. He tried to concentrate as he ran, concentrate on that fading sensation that had to be Chelsea Jewel. What direction? He couldn't tell. Nails men squatted in a wide, loose circle, each man facing out, guns at the ready. Nails pulled a small black plastic clicker from his breast pocket. Fire in the hole, he said, then clicked the clicker three times. The walls of 1801 Atwater blasted outward at the base. The last surviving bits of glass shattered, along with the plywood that covered most of the windows. Pieces of the roof shot into the sky, trailed by thick tendrils of expanding black smoke. The building collapsed upon itself, hundred-year-old brick walls falling in and down. A second later, rolling smoke and dust billowed out, obscuring everything. Holy shit, one of the men said, laughing. That's awesome. Crap, Dew said. Sure hope there's nothing contagious in this dust. He pulled out his sad phone. We got it, Murray. Perry felt her, just a bit, the last trailing of sensation. Chelsea, moving, still blocking him. Then she was gone. And he knew, with absolute certainty, that he'd never get her back, not unless she wanted it to happen. She had become too powerful. I lost her, Perry said. I lost Chelsea. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.